Okay, we'll, um, after a little introduction, we'll begin at verse 5. Um, just to remember again, once again, that we've been called, verse 3, uh, we've been called by his own glory and excellence, the excellence and glory of God, the means by which he drew us to himself. Uh, back in First Peter chapter 2, you're a chosen, gener- you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter writes, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. <clears throat> so we've been called by uh, verse 3, his glory and excellence. And then he's also, in that call, is now calling us to declare or proclaim those excellencies to others. Uh, the, the praises call forth, or we're to praise him for having called us and to show that uh, or declare that to others, the one who called us out of darkness into his light. And then he's given us, verse 4, the precious promises, the most precious, the greatest promises. Uh, And we are now partakers of divine nature, not little gods, but naturalized citizens. Linsky says, naturalized citizens of the kingdom of God. And so in this inherited divine nature that we have as children of God, everything Uh, that is of the kingdom that is ours, he's speaking to there in verse 4. He's granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So we, God is at work restoring the image uh, his image in us, and righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. We could go to uh, Colossians chapter 2 where he says, we put off the old man uh, and have put on the new which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of his creator, uh, of its creator. And so we've been re- we're being renewed in the knowledge of the image of God. Uh, Ephesians 4, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so this true righteousness, this true holiness, this godliness, uh, this knowledge of God that is given to us at conversion uh, is restoring us into the image of God. Again, we're not deified, we know that. But uh, Peter's talking about the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, Or to me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, Jesus says he talks with the disciples, you and me and I and you, that relationship, that communion we have with God. And because God has done all of this, verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness 
and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. And so having escaped the corruption of the world, which we escaped that corruption, that uh, the corruption in the world that is the, uh, the, that which causes the downward spiral of life, uh, the corruption that is in the world, leading to destruction. We've, been, we've escaped that. Uh, the world is full of men and women are full of this corruption. Uh, and it's because of sinful desire. That's an important passage. I mean, just an important phrase, because of sinful desire. The reason I say that, so many Christians, so many conservative Christians tend to avoid the world, thinking that, you know, if, if, um, if uh, we can uh, retreat from the world, Then we can stay unspotted by the world. Here's uh, uh, 1 John 2 all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with the desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What Peter is not saying is that we can escape the corruption of this world by running away from the world, by uh, breaking out or avoiding entering into uh, somewhere. The corruption in the world is the outworking of sinful desires, of lusts that are within. which is what James says, that's where the conflicts come from. The conflicts don't come, you don't make me mad. You do something I don't like, and then within I respond. The the evil desire comes up, and then I get mad, and then I tend to respond. But it's inside, it's the desires inside that uh, are are troubles, Uh, you know, the, the idea that we can escape falling into sins, these sins, by avoiding places, avoiding people, uh, and avoiding things, it's truly a false hope. Um, we do avoid evil people, things, places, and things, but that doesn't get rid of the evil desires within. Um, uh, by you know, it's an inside job, and uh, grace through faith is the only means of escape. But when we come to Christ, we have escaped these corruptions. First Corinthians six. Turn to First Corinthians six for a minute. We'll read verse, let's just begin at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Some people are deceived that they can live unrighteously and enter the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I would say that it's not someone who commits a particular sin that's in this list. This is more a how you are identified. Are you identified as this kind of a person? Are you a thief? He's not saying if you've ever stolen something, you're not going to be able to enter the kingdom of God, but are you a thief? Are you a drunkard? Not asking, Peter's not, or Paul's not saying, look, if, you did, if you've ever gotten drunk, you're out of the kingdom. It's being identified as this. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is your lifestyle, habitual sin, will not inherit the kingdom of God, the end of verse 10, verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Such were some of you. The world will teach you, you know, some of these, the world will teach you if you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. Well, the problem with that is I can't give you a biblical answer to an alcoholic. I can't give you a biblical remedy for alcoholism. I can give you a biblical remedy for drunkenness. That is, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You were a drunk. Now you are sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're no longer a drunk. There's the biblical solution. Sexual and moral people can be washed clean by the blood of Christ. You were that. You're no longer that if you're a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean a Christian doesn't sin, but that means you've what had a hold of you, what you were enslaved to in the past, you are now free from it. You've escaped the corruption that is, is in the world because of evil desires. You have a new heart. You're not the same on the inside as a Christian. That has been changed. And such were some of you. You've washed, you, you were washed, sanctified, and justified. You can go back to Second Peter, um, as as I think another place to think about that, uh, uh, Romans six one and two, where Paul says, "What shall we say as Christians? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound?" And he said, "No way. How can we who have died to sin? We have died to sin." He says that as a statement of fact. 
We don't have to sin as Christians anymore. Nothing um, uh, in our body, nothing can, we, we have no excuse for any sin that we commit as Christians. We've died to it. Here's the problem. Verse 11, he says, now you need to reckon it to be true. You need to determine that it is so. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You've been made alive in Christ. You have died to sin. Now, the only way you're going to have victory is to consider it to be so. Right? Comments, any questions, any statements? Can't think of a better love story than being set free from something that is killing and destroying you. Right? That's good. Okay. Why would God consider us? That's grace. Yes. Yes. What did he tell his people? What did he tell Israel? I didn't pick you because you're big. I didn't pick you because you're smart. Because he loved us. Why did he love us? Certainly not because of who we are. Who he is. And all that he's done for us. We'll get to that in a minute as we get to love. We may not get there tonight. But anyway, just some thoughts as we talk about having escaped. We have escaped the corruption that's in the world in Second Peter. Um, uh, and so having escaped, for this very reason, verse 5, make every effort. We have to do our due diligence to be being conformed by, into the image of Christ. We have to be diligent about it. Make every effort. How, how hard do you strive to get rid of sin? How hard do you strive to be more like Christ? How hard do you strive to uh, avoid the world's uh, deceptions? It's going to take every effort you've got. Make every effort, he says there, verse 5, to supplement your faith. So he's going to start with faith. That faith which is given to us uh, as a gift in our conversion, right? We, God has given us the gift of faith. Uh, and he says, make every effort to supplement or to add to your faith that's the beginning of the Christian life enables us to trust in Christ we're called to add what God has already given us and then he gives seven characteristics seven Christian characteristics uh, that are developed or call, he calls us to develop in sanctification in the process of being sanctified it's the working of the Spirit and uh, our obedience of faith. 
working together to make us more like Christ as we go on the journey. We have this faith given to us when we believe, and now he says, add to this faith these seven things. The first one, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. I uh, struggled with this. It took me uh, probably half the time working on these four or five verses with this one word, virtue, because it's just so, for me, it's, it's just so uh, hazy. Um, we, surely you have a sense of what virtue is, what a virtuous life is. Um, it's the same word, actually, if you look at verse 3, that uh, says God called us to his own glory and excellence. It's the same word there as excellence. So uh, he says, make a, be diligent to add to your faith excellence. And that doesn't help me a lot to get a concrete idea or a, a idea exactly what uh, Peter is referring to here. Again, 1 Peter 2.9. We are called, having become a chosen people, we're called to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into light. The same word. And, and so as I search through, I think the word as much as anything has to do with praise. And so we're called to proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into light so we have been called out of darkness into light and now we in that calling this life that God has given us through his grace we're called now to proclaim his praises for these saving acts that he has wrought through his son Jesus Christ so add to your faith now this praise, this life of praise, this excellence, this virtuous life um, that Peter had talked about in, in First Peter. And we're not only called to a virtuous life, to let our life so, light so shine before men that they'll see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. We're called to make the gospel, if you will, attractive by our consistent, virtuous living. We're called not to be a stumbling block. We're, not, we're called not to say, Jesus changed my life and then live just like the rest of the world lives. Uh, so we're called to a, a virtuous life. Then he says, add to that. Anybody want to say anything about that? Yes, sir, Mr. Dr. Warner. Moral excellence is New American Translation. Or, no, you have the LSB. Okay, moral excellence, yes. Uh, moral excellence. Now, the morals are, as we've learned in our Sunday school class, morals is how, how it, our grade on how we keep the uh, ethics. Ethics are what's right and wrong. Morality is the measure of how we measure up. And so excellence, according to, we're living 
We're measuring up according to what the Bible says is an excellent life. That's the call on our life. We go forward to knowledge. Add to, or, or the way that the ESV has it, supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge. Uh, I mentioned this earlier. This is not the same word knowledge that we receive, the knowledge of God in our conversion. The way Peter uses it, this is a different word for knowledge, a little less intensive word, but it's a word that seems to be growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see this here in verse um, 6, virtue, add to, supplement your virtue with knowledge and your knowledge with self-control. In chapter 3, verse 18, as he's closing, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is knowledge that can be built upon, knowledge that can be added to, uh, you ladies will be happy if you're married to uh, husbands that are not yet glorified. You'll be happy. Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. That's a knowledgeable way. And so Peter's call in 1 Peter 3 is grow in your knowledge of your wife. This is a knowledge that can be added to. So as we're understanding our wives, we're never going to get there completely until we're glorified. But there is hope that we will, as husbands, grow in our knowledge of our wives. And we'll be more like the calling on our uh, own persons as husbands to be cr like Christ. So... Um, we increase that knowledge by reading the Word, by hearing the Word, by discussing the Word, by meditating upon the Word, by prayer for God's help to understand the Word. The false teachers claimed knowledge. Um, they claimed some new knowledge and people... Chapter 2, verse 3. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. Verse 2 introduces these false prophets. and I mean, verse 1 of chapter 2 introduces false prophets. But verse 3, many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. They're making up some their own knowledge or their own teachings. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffers, following their own sinful desires. So these uh, prophets, or false prophets that Peter is warning the readers about uh, are, have these false teachings, and uh, he says they're based on stories they've made up. Chapter 2, verse 12, and we'll go through this a little bit more as we get there. These like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they are ignorant. That word ignorant is 
unknowledgeable. Uh, so that's these false teachers. Verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. So these false teachers are offering freedom while they're enslaved themselves in the corruptions that is in the world that Christians have been freed from, escaped from. Uh, Now, supplement your knowledge with is self-control next? Knowledge with self-control. This is exactly what the false teachers lack. They're just uh, uh, teaching, living according to their own evil desires. Uh, Their lusts are unbridled, Peter will say. They revel in the daytime. Chapter 2, verse 13, interesting verse about them. Suffering wrong as the wage of their undoing, they count it pleasure. That would be revel, I believe, in the New American. But they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. There they are. They are, they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. There's some interesting words in there. Essentially, it's, the idea is they're, they're living luxuriously and carousing or entertaining sumptuously with you. They will draw you into this lavish, luxurious lifestyle and teach you that that's exactly what the gods want for you. Um, So through increasing your knowledge of the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells you, you'll be able to keep your desires under control, to reject their teaching. We can go to Galatians 5, 22 and 23 and see the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And and again, this is not um, an abstinence from fun, from pleasure. It's not a legalistic depriving of ourselves, especially of things that God permits, you know. Um, Do not handle, the the Colossian heresy said, don't handle, don't taste, don't do this, don't do that, according to human precepts and teachings. Teachings beyond the scripture. Don't do this, don't do that. It's not that, that's not what uh, Peter's talking about. It's like the, you know, the prohibition of the 20s said, you cannot have any alcohol. And so, Interestingly enough, it became illegal in our land for just a very short time. That didn't last very long. Yeah, 20s. The 1920s. Um, Or another one that would fall into these, uh, according to human precepts and teaching, the Catholic teaching of celibacy. It's one of the things that gets them in trouble because of their unbiblical teaching. They can't find enough priests 
because of their unbiblical restriction on marriage. Uh, and so that's not what Peter's talking about. Uh, in fact, it's, I think it's John Brown, a Scottish commentator who says it's not there's no value to wealth and privileges, but the value is nowhere near what the false teachers think. And as believers, we look at the prosperities uh, of life with a wary eye. You know, there's nothing wrong with being rich, but there's warnings to the rich that you can be carried away uh, with worldly pleasures with being rich. Uh, Christians can be rich. Abraham, that Corey's been teaching us about, was wealthy. Jacob's got quite a flock, quite an uh, entourage of his family with him. God has blessed him. But there are warnings. It's not the end for which we're living our lives. Then add to, now as he keeps going, add to your self-control steadfastness, patience, long-suffering in the midst of life, in the midst of trials. God assures us as believers we'll persevere in the faith, right? Um, uh, because he keeps us for himself. But Peter's speaking about a more of a practical day-by-day perseverance. Uh, here's one definition. Steadfast adherence to one's deliberate purpose and loyalty to his faith. In spite of difficulties, with the component of hope and confidence that whatever God does is right. So we make a commitment. We're going to live for Christ. And then in spite of difficulties, in spite of testings, we're going to stay loyal to our commitment because... We have a future promised because we have hope and confidence in the promises of God and that whatever God does for us brings before us whatever God does is right. And that's that sense of this uh, uh, perseverance or steadfastness, willing to put up with tough times because of the promise of better times. And so as Christians, we persevere. Even though it may bring opposition, it may bring us distress, we're trusting that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. That's in chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, since we're looking forward to Christ's return, we make it our aim to be spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Uh, there, 3.14, as, as Peter closes sec, his second letter, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish uh, and at peace. Throughout this letter, these false teachers, are Peter's warning them about. He's teaching them about their salvation. He's, he's preparing them, arming them to face these false teachers. Uh, He's not afraid that they're going to fall away so much because of the hard times, but by the enticements, the worldly enticements from these uh, false teachers, these who refuse to believe uh, 
to submit themselves to the Lord who bought them, as Peter will say, and we'll look at that passage later. But also, uh, they refuse to believe that Christ is returning. Where's the promise of his coming? It's been, it's been for them, they say, uh, they're saying it's been 30 years. He said he was coming back. It's been 30 years. He's not back. Jesus isn't coming back. And we say, well, it's been 2,000 years, and some will say, is he really coming back? Well, he promised he would, and he'll be back when it's time, when he says it's over. Until then, it's the day of salvation. Uh, next is godliness, steadfastness, godliness, living in reverence towards God, uh, right beliefs, that lead us to a devoted life. We make it our ambition to please Him. Second Corinthians 5, 9, these false prophets and their followers uh, are ungodly. They trouble others. They distress others. They're unprincipled. They live lawless lives. And so uh, this points out the importance of perseverance, a commitment to Christ with God's help to continue in the faith, and then this godliness of the uh, readers. Then he says, he talks about brotherly affection. So the next characteristic is Philadelphia, uh, brotherly love, a love of those we like or are drawn to, those with whom we have common interests with, the godly, we as Christians must, um, uh, uh, Linsky says, the godly must cling together like so many brothers of a family, so many friends and close friendship. We need each other. We need to practice the one another's in our relationship with each other uh, within the church. But this is brotherly affection. Um, mostly with those we like, we have common interests with, we'll hook up and become friends. We'll be friends. There'll be friendships amongst us. It's brotherly affection. And so we avoid ungodly people. They have no principles. They can't have any real friends. Jesus says, you're my friends. I used to call you servants, now you're friends. What a friend we have in Jesus, but what a friend we have in each other. Yes, Bruce. Yes, good, in community, community, unity together, yes. And the last is love. He ends here in, with, with love. Um, in contrast, and this is, uh, I'm going to uh, draw on Lloyd-Jones. I've been reading a book on Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, and he makes a, a distinction between loving someone and liking someone. It was so very helpful to me and. Uh, in contrast to those we might like or are drawn to by our affection, 
by our desi- desires, I, I, I'll use that word, uh, this is a call to love our enemies. This is agape love. This is a, a, a love. We, you can't show the love of affection. You can't show brotherly love to your enemies. In fact, from the root word of phileo, which is brotherly, I mean love, the affection, the root word of that is kiss. You can't kiss your enemy. They'll they'll slap you back. Um, But, uh, as we're called to love our enemies, it's the gospel, right? God so loved the sinful world, the fallen world, knowing the world and the people in the world completely and perfectly. He knew us. And he said about cleansing it. So we're to love even our enemies because God first loved us. We're to love our enemies understanding their alienation from God and becoming set on helping them to be freed from their enslavement, from the corruptions of the world that is dominating their life. Jesus warned and denounced his enemies, right? Is that love? Yeah. Yes, that's love. That's loving them enough to tell them they're in deep trouble as they reject him. I mean, it's like us loving our children, right? When we have to discipline them. He truly loved them. He didn't like them. He didn't embrace them. He didn't call them brothers. He didn't call them friends. Um, And Lloyd-Jones says, liking is something natural and instinctual. It's not the result of effort. Right? Liking someone. I like Jason here. We talk a lot. It's not hard for me to like Jason. Uh, Liking is natural and instinctual. Lord Jones says love is the opposite of liking. Goes beyond natural and instinctual looks past what it does not like in order to act kindly toward the person who has many flaws. Uh, Loving those we do not like means that we treat them as if we like them. Uh, And Lloyd-Jones says this is the gospel. This is firmly rooted in the gospel. The same type of love we receive. God loved us when we were enemies. Uh, Not when we were friends. Goes beyond neighbor love, he says, which has ourselves as the defining element. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it goes to 
It makes Christ the defining element. Love your neighbor as I have loved you. Goes past the golden rule, which says we do to others as we as we would have them do to us. But he says gospel love means we do to others what he has done for us, not as we want them to do to us. Loving this way is only possible for Christians. Loving this way proves we are Christians, that we have passed out of darkness and death into light and life. 1 John three fourteen. we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And so, um, this here's... Um, Here's what happens, or here's how this can play itself out. Should you do good to others, even if you don't want to? Will it count with God if your heart's not right? Yeah, that's exactly what Lloyd-Jones is saying. Lloyd-Jones is saying, look, you don't like the person, you don't like the circumstance, you don't like whatever's going on, but you love them, the person. Were you going to say something, Bruce? Mm. One didn't want to go, but he went. The other one, yeah. Uh, and you say, well, look, I can't do that. I can't love my enemy. I can't do for them something that I don't want to do. And, and so uh, here's what Lloyd-Jones says about that. First off, see that the sovereign God is the source of this love. Right? Faith comes only because God gives us the gift of faith because he loved us before the foundation of the world. We only love because he first loved us. Uh, So Christian faith and love owe their very existence to God's grace and power. And he says it is here that we see how our ideas of what the Christian is fall hopelessly short of biblical teaching. The Christian is a new creation, not just a good or improved person. Jesus didn't die to make us, uh, he didn't die for, to make bad people good, right? He died to give life to dead people. Um, and so love is a result of being created in Christ, not something that comes natural, To a natural man, it's supernatural. It requires a new birth. So he says, see the sovereign God as the source. Then apply faith to the situation. We receive the gift of faith as we're converted. Then we're called to live a life of faith. Uh, Faith applied into our life daily. Without applying faith to life, Jesus says you have little faith. It will lead to an impoverished life at best. Without a lived-out faith, it will. Lloyd Jones says it will lead to an impoverished life at best. At worst, 
I'll say it's wasted faith. It's not faith at all. Uh, if there's no uh, result or no fruit from faith, saving faith is active, it's practical. We exercise it. We put it into operation. And then thirdly, we walk in love. We put our doctrine into practice. We've been adopted. We're called to love because as children, we're children of God who is love. And we don't imitate God to become his loved children. We uh, imitate God because we are his children. And the doctrine of the atonement, we love as Christ has loved us. And he loved us by giving himself up for it for us, and we're called to give ourselves up uh, for others. So, that's, we got through verse 7, maybe 8. Any, any questions, any comments before we dismiss? Father, we thank you for this calling that you've given us as your people. It is a high calling, the calling that is uh, not natural. It's the calling that we're unable to fulfill except by your spirit, the new life you've given us. Lord, help us to not only like those who are likable, but to love as you loved us. When you found us unlovable, Picked us out of the pit. Set our rock, our feet on the solid rock. May we proclaim these saving acts, these mercies, these excellencies that you will, you are a saving God. Teach us your grace. Empower us and convict us to proclaim your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.